0: Well, today we are wrapping up our series on Ecclesiastes. Next Sunday, uh, we're gonna, as we move towards Easter, we're going to go back to uh, the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and so if you wanted to go ahead and be reading that letter, uh, you are welcome to do so. Uh, but as we finish Ecclesiastes, we should be asking the question, What do we do? ...with all that we've heard. What, do we, what exactly does, do, the, do the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes... ...how do they impact us? Uh, and for most of the time in this book, we've been hearing from the preacher. Uh, that's how the, the, this Bible translates uh, his title. Your translation may say the teacher. Uh, but today, we're actually going to hear from a different voice. Uh, so from chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 8... Those are the words of the preacher, the main voice in Ecclesiastes. And if you look at those two verses, you'll notice that he ends the same way that he begins by saying all is vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Right. And we said that 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 doesn't mean meaningless, that life is meaningless, but it does mean that life is difficult, uh, that life is like a a wisp of smoke or, or it's like trying to grab a hold of fog. Uh, it looks solid. It looks like something you can get a handle on, and then when you try, it escapes your grasp, right? So so life in lots of ways can be futile, and that's been the message of the preacher. But if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, and then the passage we're going to look at today, uh, we're going to hear from what we can call the editor. And this is someone who has taken the words of the preacher and has put them together in this book uh, and ha- here in these last uh, several verses, verses 9 through 14, he's going to summarize what it is that, uh, that he has heard or what we should be getting from this book. So let's give our attention to God's word, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. If you're using the, the black Bible there in the in the row, it's page 559. I did notice I was in here with the youth earlier this week, and I noticed that many of the racks don't have a Bible in them. So if your neighbor looks lost as a goose, like they're trying to find something to read from, and you have a Bible in front of you, just hand it to them, and then we'll try to remember to put more Bibles back in the row uh, so that they are there for people to use. But Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. We pray that one more time, you would wake us up, you would open our eyes, you would unstop our ears, And that you would change our hearts. And that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever been uh, sifting for gold? Or at least when you were kids, you were told that's what you were doing, right? Uh, I think they used to do this at DeSoto Caverns. I can't remember. I've been somewhere as a child where, you know, like you go to the, the stream and they hand you the, the sifter, right, the plate that has all the tiny holes in the bottom, and you like dig out the dirt, and then you start shaking it back and forth, and all of the, the sand and the dirt fall through, and what you're left with, hopefully, is gold, right? That's how they, that's how they panned for gold in the olden days, Right. But the idea is that you get rid of all the all the other stuff and what you're left with are hopefully some precious stones. Uh, And that's what the editor is telling us about this book and what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing. He's he's sifting it all out for us. Right. He's getting down to the gold or we might say he's getting down to the bottom line. And in verses nine through twelve, he tells us first why we should listen to the preacher so it's something like a, a book endorsement, right? If you go and you pick up a book, on the back of the book or inside the front cover, you'll see endorsements. You'll see somebody saying, uh, here's, here's who I am, here's what I liked about the book, and here's why you should read it, right? And that's what, that's what the, the editor is doing in verses 9 through 12. He's telling us why we should listen to the preacher. And then in verses 13 and 14, he tells us what to do with everything that we've heard, And we could summarize it in this way, and this may not come as a great shock, and it sounds very simple, and hopefully we'll see that it's, uh, while it sounds simple, it's hard to do. Uh, The meaning of life, and that's really the question that we've been pursuing, what is the meaning of life? Where do we find ultimate joy and satisfaction? And what Ecclesiastes says is that the meaning of life is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. You want to know what life looks like? There it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. So first, why should we listen? What does the preacher have to offer us? And first, what we see is that the preacher is not only wise, but he's also a good teacher. He's not simply concerned with gaining knowledge, but in giving it out. Uh, So wisdom literature is not unique uh, to the Old Testament. It wasn't unique to Israel in the ancient times. There were lots of cultures have wisdom literature. And what this is telling us is that the preacher gathered all of that knowledge and he weighed it out, right? He discerned what's good, what's bad, what should be included, what should be left out. He, He read widely and he sifted through it and he studied it and then he arranged it and communicated it. Right. So he he didn't just stay in the basement or in the ivory tower, as we say. Right. He brought what he had studied. He brought the fruits of his labor out so that other people could benefit from it. And how does he do that? Well, verse 10 tells us that he searches for words of delight or pleasurable words. He finds words of delight and words of truth. His words are both beautiful and true. Now we don't usually put those two things together, do we? Right? When we think of truth and beauty, we kind of put those in in separate categories, right? Truth truth is like a an object set on a, a cold, sterile examining table and we we examine it. That's something true. And beauty is like flowers and sunsets and mountaintops, right? But what this tells us is that actually those two things are not separate things. They are together things. That the words of the preacher are true because they're beautiful. And they're beautiful because they're true. Uh, For example, last week, uh, the the last poem of the preacher, the way that he closes the book uh, in in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, he gives us a poem about growing old and dying. Now, I can say, you're going to get old and die. And that would be a true statement, right? That's true. But he communicates it beautifully, right? He says, you know, one day the silver, the silver cord is going to snap. And one day the golden bowl is going to break. And one day the pitcher is going to shatter at the fountain, right? The beauty of his words bring home The truth of his words. Beauty brings home truth. And that's actually how the whole Bible works. I wonder if many of us don't get a whole lot out of the Bible because we approach it something like we approach uh, an instruction manual for your microwave. Right. It's full of true statements. You know, so it's like, okay, I'm angry. So what is the Bible going to tell me about anger? Boom. I should stone my neighbor. You know, right. We we thumb through the Bible looking for truth and there is the truth is, is there. It is true. But it's beautiful truth. It's truth told in the form of a story of a God who comes to get rebellious sinners and rescue them and bring them back to himself. And only as we grasp the beauty of the story, does the truth really begin to make sense. So we don't need to separate truth and beauty they go together. Truth is beautiful, uh, and beauty, real beauty, is truthful. But we also see not only that he searched for words of delight and communicate words of truth, but we also see in verse eleven that these true words can be painful. It Says that the words of the wise are like goads. You know what a goad is? It's a sharp stick. And, you, and they used it to poke sheep when they weren't going the right way. Right? We would call it today a, a cattle prod. Right? Sometimes wise words feel like cattle prods. How so? Well, if the, if the sheep you know, would start veering off the path, would go away that wasn't good for the sheep, the shepherd would poke him. Right? And the sheep would jump and would come back on and then he may start veering this way. And again, the shepherd would poke him and he would get back on the road. And God's word functions like that. In fact, uh, we see that there in verse 11 that these are the words of one shepherd. That the words function like the goad of the shepherd. It's driving us. It's sometimes when we start veering off the path, it inflicts pain. And that word gives us a jolt. And I hope that you felt that uh, as we've gone through Ecclesiastes. Right? That's, that's the goal. If, if we've gone through Ecclesiastes, right, and what Ecclesiastes has done is it's looked at all the things that we grip onto with white knuckles, saying, no, this is going to make me happy. What the preacher has done, he's come along and said, nope, nope, nope. And if you, if you haven't felt any pain through that, you're not alive, right? You're not, you're not listening. You're not hearing what he has to say. If you can leave the Bible, if you can leave God's word saying, man, I hit it down the fairway every time, right? If you can leave the Bible saying 10 out of 10, I'm batting a thousand. This is great. You're not listening, Right? Because the words of the wise are like goads. They're like sharp sticks that inflict pain when we start doing things that are dumb and will kill us. All right? And ultimately, we should listen to these words because they're not just the preacher's words. These collected wise sayings are actually a gift. They are given, he says, by one shepherd. Who's the one shepherd? Well, the rest of the Bible answers that, answers that question. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah 40:11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Ezekiel 34:15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Jesus, twice in John 10, I am the good shepherd. These are not simply the words of men. The men wrote them, but there is an author behind the authors. And the more familiar you become with the Bible, the more you hear his voice in all of the different voices of Scripture. All of these words are given by one shepherd. And that should change how we approach the Bible. It should change how we come uh, to the Bible every time we open it, whether we open it in here or whether we open it in a small group or whether you open it on your home. I realize that the Bible can be hard to understand But do you approach the Bible expecting to hear from the shepherd? Do you come to the word of God expectantly? And sometimes, right, some of his words are going to be like goads. They're going to be like sharp sticks. They're going to cause cause me pain because I'm going the wrong direction. Now, that doesn't mean they're bad. Right, what would you think uh, if, you know, you were at Walmart and a small child was just running, right, running out the door into the parking lot. And you looked back at the child's mother and she said, ah, boys will be boys. What are you going to do, right? That little boy needs a goad, right? Right, when I'm, when I'm running headlong into death and I don't realize that it's death, I need someone to grab me by the arm. And say, stop. If you keep going this way, it'll kill you. That's what the words of the shepherd can do for us. They're good. They may be hard, but they're good. But then some of his words will also make us smile. They bring delight. Right in Psalm 1910, David says that God's words are more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Is that what you think when you approach the Bible? When you open that cover, do you say, give me the gold? Let me taste, let me taste the honey. Right? Do we come to the Bible looking for that? When you, when you hear Jesus tell the parable of the prodigal son, right, the son that ran away and took his father's money and wasted it all and then realized what he'd done, and he starts coming home, And while he's still a long way off, Jesus says, what does the father do? Does he wait on the porch so he can wag his finger at him? No, he he gathers up his robes and he does something that no Middle Eastern man would ever do. He ran. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And he said, this my son was dead and now he's alive. Those are good words. Those words are meant to make us smile. They're meant to remind us of our good father, words of delight and words of truth. We should come to the Bible looking for that. So that's why we should listen. What should we do as a result? Well, he boils it all down real simple in verse 13, the end of the matter. This is it. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God. We've talked about this before already in this series, but what does it mean to fear God? Michael Allen, a professor, seminary professor, says it doesn't mean to quake in our boots. But it does mean to take God seriously. That means a God-centered focus in all areas of life. That's what it means to fear God. Augustine who lived in the early 400s? He, he distinguished between servile fear, right? The fear of the slave always cowering in dread, and filial fear or family fear, right? The fear that a, the, the good fear that a child has of a good parent. That's what it means to fear God, that reverence and awe. And here, at the end of Ecclesiastes, we see what we saw at the beginning of Proverbs last year. And if you've been with us since last summer, you've now gone through a good chunk of the wisdom literature in the Bible. We looked at Proverbs and we looked at Ecclesiastes. And here they say the same thing. Right, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you really want to be wise, that the foundation of a wise life begins with a fear of the Lord, a right reverential awe and respect of God. That's what it means to be wise. And now here at the end of Ecclesiastes, what does it mean to be human but to fear God? Uh, Corum Deo, it's a Latin phrase, and it means before God's face. To fear God is to live Corum Deo. Recognizing that everything I do and every decision I make is lived first and foremost before God. How do we do that? Well, he says here, by keeping his commandments. Now, maybe that sounds a little bit strange. After all, the name of our church is Grace Fellowship. So, well, we still got to keep the law? It's not law fellowship, it's grace fellowship, right? Right? What does he mean? Well, if someone or something is your highest love, you will pattern your life after that thing or person. All right. So I use Alabama football because it's what I know. All right. There are you can go uh, on many Saturdays in the fall, and you can find people in Tuscaloosa and across this great state and country right that there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who pattern their lives after Alabama football right it it affects how they spend their money and how they spend their time it affects the rhythms of their lives the rhythms of their year in fact if you want to know what you fear show me the rhythm of your life show me the different things that you make time for that you set priorities on right What are your rhythms? And I'll show you what it is that you fear. What are the things that shape you? What are the things that give shape to your time? That's probably what you fear. What you fear is demonstrated in what gives shape to your life and priorities. Uh, For those of you uh, who went to the Pursuing the Heart Workshop a couple of weeks ago, one of the principles that we talked about is that Desire, right, that we act, we live out of our deep desires, that our desires drive us to action. And so what we see here, if we're going to use that principle here, that a desire to fear God leads to keeping his commandments. That if I fear God, I will desire, I will strive to walk with him by doing what he says. It can't be any other way. Right? I can tell my wife I love her all day long. But if I constantly gawk at other women and tell my wife how beautiful they are and that, they, that she should do what they're doing, then I clearly don't love my wife. Right, There's something else that I love. Desire leads to action. We will keep God's commandments if we fear Him. Why? Why should I fear God and keep his commandments? He gives us two reasons here in the text. The first thing he says, in verse 13, Fear God and keep his commandments because, for, this is the whole of man. The word duty, which uh, is in the ESV, is not in the Hebrew text. It's not wrong. Uh, The translators put it there because it helps make sense of it. But literally what it says is, because this is the whole of man. In other words... This is everything. Fearing God is what it means to be rightly human. You want to you know what purpose you were made for? You want to know what real humanity looks like? Fear God. Everything. Every area of life. There is no part of life that is not affected by fearing God. That's what it means to be human. Certainly our duty, but it goes deeper than that. It's what we were made for. It's the, it's the puzzle piece that when you drop it in, makes sense of everything else. Simon Sinek uh, is an inspirational author uh, and speaker. You may have heard of him. His famous book is Know Your Why. Right? So he's made lots of money helping people ask the why question and then helping them answer it, right? knowing why you exist. Well, somebody's answered that question already. It was, it's answered in the scriptures already, right here. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, part of the, the doctrinal statements of our church, says it in the first question, the very first question we ask. What is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? Why does every man, woman, and child exist? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You want to know why you exist? You want to know your Why? That's it. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. You won't go wrong if that is your aim, right? If that, if that is the compass, if that is the true north of your compass, you will not go astray. The problem is my compass is jacked up, right? I always have to remind myself. I always have to go back to that true north because I don't want to fear God. I want to fear you. I don't want to glorify God. I want to glorify me. Right? How could this, if, if, you, if you put this principle in your life, how would this change the decisions that you make? I uh, heard a story this week of a campus minister. So this is a, a man who works with college students. Uh, and he was talking, he, he, he challenges his students uh, he tries to flip the script because usually what happens as we 're getting close to graduating, finishing school is we start asking like okay uh, what what job will bring me the most financial reward uh, what job will bring me the most satisfaction right i 've always wanted to own a house here, so i 'm going to go and live there and he encourages his students to flip the script and say what would what would bring God the most glory what what would what would fearing God look like uh, before you took that job? What would what if you what if you said you know what? How can I contribute to the community? What before I move and take a job somewhere else? Is there a good church community here that I can invest in? Can I can I make a difference where I'm at? Um, another pastor has said that you'll find what, where your best vocation is where your talents. And the need of the world meet. Right? So, so what if you asked that question before you made the decisions that you make? Before you married that person? Before you had kids? Before you stopped having kids? What if you said, what does fearing God look like for me in this moment? And started with that question. And then moved to the next questions. Right? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Flip the script. He also gives us a second reason, and it's in verse 14. And I don't imagine it's one that we much like to think about. He says, we should fear God and keep his commandments because God will bring every deed into judgment, even the ones that no one knows about. That's a little scary. But why is that good news? Why is the judgment of God good news. Think about some of the things that we've heard in Ecclesiastes, some of those pain points in life where there's a lot of futility, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? What do we do with all of the evil in the world? How do we live with that? How do we reconcile that? And there aren't easy answers. What do you do when a Russian madman invades a whole country and begins killing people by shelling their cities? Why? Why? And what this tells us, why this is good news, is that we hear one day God will bring it all to right. Every single person will stand before the throne of God. And his justice will be completely pure and good and right and holy. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought much about that. We don't like to think much about that and there's a reason why it's because we're not that person right now we like to think by comparison like well you know vladimir putin's going to get his but have you ever considered the fact what what will you say when you stand before the judgment seat when you're eyeball to eyeball with jesus and your entire record is laid open in fact, what well, we like to maybe even say like, well, you know, and this is why I like the, the words of Jesus and not so much the hard words of the Old Testament. You know, I prefer the, the love and grace message of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12. I once, uh, I once had a friend uh, who was asked, he's a pastor of a church, he was asked, hey, do you, guys have a, do you guys have a social media policy that says what your staff and leaders can and can't post online? Here's how he responded. These are Jesus' words from Matthew 12:36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak or type. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who will sit on that judgment throne. He is the one who will lay the record out open, and we will have to give account. What will your account be? We're talking about it in Sunday school. Perfect, Perfect obedience is the requirement. So whose record do you want to stand on? Yours or Jesus's? Because here's what Jesus says in John 5. We read it, Steve read it earlier. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That if you're going to rest in your own work, then, then you're going to have to, you and every other awful person that you can think of is going to stand before that judgment throne. Will you be able to justify yourself? Or, and and by the way, it won't be a comparison game. It won't be like, well, I'm, I'm at least not as bad as him. Can I get some brownie points for that? No, no, no. Every individual. There won't, there won't be any self-justification. There won't be any excuse-making. It'll be done, right? And so you'll have a choice. Will you rest in Christ? I mean, will you rest in yourself? Or will you rest in Christ alone? That's, that's the offer of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do for us. So when we trust in him, we receive his record. And we hear from the throne, not guilty. Right? The preacher says, all is vanity. But, if you are in Christ, the gospel gives a better answer. Listen to how Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about that day, uh, the, the last day, the resurrection day. And he says this. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So apart from Christ, vanity. In Christ, victory. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, and we pray the prayer of William Laud. Grant, O Lord, that we may live in your fear, die in your favor, rest in your peace, rise in your power, and reign in your glory for your own beloved Son's sake. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.